This is the entrance to the Temple of Apollo, and right next to the Temple of Apollo would have been a butcher shop right here. And it was filled with meat that had just been cooked and sacrificed to Apollo that you could get at a discounted rate. And so, so much of Corinthians was actually written, so much of the New Testament of Paul's letters were written to people wrestling with this question. If we renounced that God, should we eat the discounted meat sacrificed to that God? If we don't believe in that God, should we still continue those practices? But not just those practices. Here's what's so interesting about the early Christians and how deeply committed they were to being atheist. The altars of the pagan gods at their pagan temples faced west. The altars at the churches and the home churches and the way they began to order their whole assembly always faced the east. There was an early Christian practice that developed that when they would pray, they would stand and face their hands towards the east, towards King Jesus, as if to receive power to deny these gods anything in their life. So it's been a real honor to get to be a part of um, Risen for the last, gosh, nine out of ten years and get to know um, lots of people, develop deep friendships, and just get to make these connections. I have really loved getting to do that, and it's an honor to get to be a part of it and get to be a part of this last, in this form of what it is. Um, it's been a real honor to get to be a part of that. We're uh, closing out what we've been talking about the last 24 hours on Christians Make the Best Atheists, and if you're new um, and this is your first time, like Brother Robert, like that's a little disturbing, I get that. I had a lot of that over the past couple of years because um, I, I would workshop this. I asked, like, hey, what do you think when I say this? Here's what I'm talking about, in case you didn't hear the last couple of sessions. For the first couple of hundred years, not just anybody could be a Christian. You had to watch for a couple of years to make sure. You had to watch other Christians to make sure the way of Jesus was for you because it was going to cost you. Everybody knew it was going to cost you to follow a person who died on a cross, something that we've forgotten. And if after a couple of years of watching another Christian, you decided you wanted to follow Jesus, you would on Easter Eve, everybody waited till Easter at midnight, they would take off all their clothes because of the Garden of Eden as a way of re-entering the Garden of Eden. Um, they stopped doing that because, I guess, of lust and the opposite problem of lust. And, but anyway, they would wait until midnight and they would go down into the baptistry. And before they would get baptized, they would turn and face the West. And they would spit the West, the pagan temples, where the temples of Artemis and Aphrodite and Athena and Zeus and Poseidon and all these other kinds of gods, the hundreds of different gods that we made in our own image that kind of just reflect the things that we really, really want in the world. And they would spit and they would renounce those. And then they would turn and face the east where Jesus was going to return from and they would pledge their allegiance to King Jesus. And then they were baptized. And from that moment on, the rest of the world really did know them primarily by atheists. We have great examples of people like Polycarp, one of the early Christian martyrs, who as he was being uh, killed, he told them, you know what, gentlemen, you don't need to tie me up. I can stand in the flame all by myself. And the crowd chanted as he was dying, away with the atheist, away with the atheist. Because it turns out Christians really do make the best atheist. So um, I want to do a sermon tonight in two parts. Part one is atheists make the best Christians. When I was um, getting ready for this series that I did in the fall, I was flying out here like I do every summer to 
hang out with Brian, and we go to a bookstore together. And anyway, I, I read a lot. Actually, I read right there in the copy room. It's kind of like a home away from home for me. But while I'm flying, um, I am on this plane. I'm reading this book, uh, and I go to the bathroom. My seatmate is right there. I haven't talked to my seatmate the entire time. I go to the bathroom, and when I come back, my seatmate is reading the book that I left in, in the seat while I was away. He's just thumbing through it, and he says to me, this is the first thing he said, we say to each other, he goes, what are you doing reading this book? And I say, what are you doing reading this book? And I explain to him, like, I'm a preacher, I tell him about what I'm going to be talking about, he's intrigued by the title, and so he asked me, and so I tell him what I'm going to tell you in just a few minutes, and he says, and they're not going to fire you for that? I was like, well, I hope not, I hadn't really thought of it before. So we'll see how this goes, okay? Um, here it is. When people, being a preacher over the last 15 years, there have been a lot of times people have asked me, sometimes they'll whisper it, do you believe in God? Like, do you ever doubt? And um, my answer is always the same. Like, No, never. I never doubt. I'm a preacher, of course. No, I don't get paid to believe. No, I, I, I doubt. Sometimes I question the existence of God. Um, and for me to not say that is to, um, it might be a little disturbing or disorienting, but it's true. And the reason I say that is because there's people that might even be here tonight that I really want to be able to hear me. And if they're not here tonight, then we all have people like that in our life. People who like, their faith um, has a limp if they have faith at all, at least faith in the God of Jesus, because everybody, as we've talked about, has faith. So to be honest, there are days when I think this whole thing looks improbable, where it feels like it could be wish fulfillment. You know, people started noticing people were dying and wishing that they didn't have to be separated from people that they loved. I've had days like that, and I want to tell you about that now because I want people who've had days like that or who might have days like that in the future to be able to hear this one idea. It was faith in God, specifically in Jesus, that made it, it was that faith in Jesus was necessary to bring us to the place where not having faith in God was even possible. That's kind of what we talked about a little bit this morning. Faith in Jesus actually was necessary to get us to a point where faith, not having faith in God at all was even possible. There's this atheist philosopher um, who I, I read over the summer for this named John Gray. He's writing in London, and he's writing to a lot of other atheists and intellectuals. And in it, John Gray, in his book Straw Dogs, he basically envisions a world without Christianity, and it's not pretty. Like, he doesn't like Christianity, but he at least respects it and understands it. He doesn't believe it. But what he doesn't like more is bad arguments. And so what he says in Straw Dogs is, he puts, if you could put this quote up, he says, Atheism is a late bloom of, Christian, of a Christian passion for truth. No pagan is ready to sacrifice the pleasure of life for the sake of mere truth. In a world of many gods, unbelief can never be total. It can only be a rejection of one god and acceptance of another. Christians struck at the root of pagan tolerance of illusion. It, in claiming that there's only one true faith, it gave truth a supreme value it did not have before. It also made disbelief in the divine possible for the first time. The long-delayed consequence of the Christian faith was an idolatry of truth that found its most complete expression in atheism. If we live in a world without gods, we have Christianity to thank for it. Now, again, this is an atheist. This is a guy who is very grateful that we live in a world where it's, not, it's possible, in his estimation, to not believe in gods. And he's saying the reason we have got to the place we are today, where the, the people in your life that you know that don't believe in God, um, 
Well, that's an expression of a, a Christian passion for truth. In other words, Christians make the best atheists. It is because of the Christian passion for truth that it's even possible to be an atheist today. And as I, um, as I was doing this series, I kept rolling out this idea to a lot of different people. And sometimes it was met with some hostility. Sometimes it was met with... Um, well, when, when I specifically shared it with people who stopped believing when, in God, sometimes they were bothered, sometimes they were indifferent, but there was a small group of people. These are people that I care about. It's the reason I started thinking about this. Who it touched something inside them. And it actually, for a handful of people started moving them on a trajectory back. Not, it was to the faith of their childhood, but not a childhood faith. They realized like they were coming back to something that was bigger than the Sunday school questions that they had before. Or the, you know, they were getting Sunday school answers to their grown-up questions. It was bigger than that. So let me just get started. And, and maybe this isn't you, and maybe this won't be you in the future, but maybe it'll be people that you love and care about. This is the kind of conversations that I had over the last few years. First question, do you want to believe in God? Because there is a big difference between I don't believe in God and I don't want to believe in God. If this was like a book, it would be dedicated to my friend Jacob. We were at Harding together. We were Bible majors together. We grew up in the same hometown. We played on the same basketball team. We were on a mission team together. And ultimately, Jacob walked away from all of it. And it one point last fall, I got to see him again for the first time in years. Didn't believe in God, didn't, you know, and, and so our lives just really kind of went separate ways, even though we were such good friends. And at one point, I got to tell him all this stuff, just, you know, here's what I've been thinking about, what does this do? And at one point after I, the smoke had cleared and we stayed up till like three in the morning talking about it, he said, Jonathan, I'm happy with my life. In other words, he didn't necessarily, he wasn't moved by any of this because he didn't want to be moved by any of this. So here's a question I think people have to honestly ask themselves. Did you stop believing in God because of something you read? Did you stop believing in God because of a class that you took or because of some experience you had because you couldn't make sense of it all? Is that really why you stopped believing or is it something else? When I was a college minister in Fort Worth, I started having this experience over and over again where people would um, stop believing in God and they would, you know, have a little bit of a faith crisis and we'd go to coffee or lunch or something. And I started noticing this enough that I just, you know, it was, you know, I, I just can't understand like the Bible. I don't think the Bible is inspired the way I used to think it was inspired. Or what about Jonah and the well? And it started happening enough that I just started asking this question about 10, 15 minutes into it. How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? And about 90% of the time, that was the case. It wasn't always that, but it was something like that. Sometimes it wasn't about sexuality. Sometimes it was about um, they had money, and they didn't want a God who would told them what to do with their money. Sometimes it was that they wanted God to be way more concerned about uh, their nation than they were, and, and, you know, or their tribe, or whatever it was. This has been happening from the beginning. KKK members like to make their racism Christian um, nationalists like to make their nation Christian. That's been happening since Constantine. But when you are confronted with the real Jesus, who as we talked about today, you don't need a religion where you're right. You need one where you're wrong. And there's all kinds of parts of Jesus that make us uncomfortable, that we've got to pay attention to. When they were confronted with the real Jesus, they had to choose between which one they would put first. 
the thing that they really worshipped or the thing that they said they worshipped. And their choice is all, your choice honestly always becomes clear in the end. You will be known by your fruit, right? And your fruit will be toxic. If, it is, if it's an idol, if it's something other than the one true God, your fruit will be toxic. Ultimately, the weight, uh, what, what are you going to put the weight of ultimate importance on? And do you want it to be God or not? There's uh, one philosopher, another atheist philosopher named Thomas Nagel, who actually, I, I love his, how candid and honest he is. Thomas Nagel says something that I think everybody thinks, but nobody actually says it out loud. And I thought it was incredibly brave for Thomas Nagel to say this. If you could put that quote up. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So here's the question I think we have to answer. And Christians have to answer this too. Like, did you go out and, and analyze all the information that was out there? Did you, did you go out and figure out all the information, the evidence? Did you weigh all that before you decided to stop believing? Or did you decide, did you already have reasons for not wanting to believe and then go out and collect your data? Or can we be honest with ourselves? We want to believe what we currently believe because it somehow works in our favor. And often, we want to believe what we believe, even as Christians, because it doesn't challenge our idols. There are some things that we worship outside of God and we have worked around ways to put Jesus' name on things that Jesus doesn't want to have any kind of association with. Um, and here's why it's important. I, I, I think it's important to ask this question because often today's, to, atheists today can sometimes be noble, and that needs to be acknowledged. People who are atheists are sometimes continuing the Christian passion for the search for truth. I mean, honestly, think about this. There would be no scientific revolution if it wasn't for Christianity. It grew straight out of, the, out of Protestantism. Um, universities were created to study the universe that God made. You ever notice how many universities are named after saints? I mean, this, this is the passion for truth. Often people are atheists because they see things like God. They see God conflated with other things like greed or racism and things like that. And they walk away from it. And that's actually a really powerful testimony to believers. Because we're called to, they're, they're reminding us of who God is. Praise God they walk away from that. Jesus would walk away from that. But the real reason I want you to think about this is not, it, it's, you can't walk away from God into having no God. I mean, that's the whole point of this. There is not in the human experience the opportunity to check off, I don't worship anything. That is not in your, that's not in the categories of possibility. In the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan, everybody's got to serve somebody, right? And for many of us, that's true. We're serving something besides God, even if we are good at being parked in church. For many of us, we, we are guilty of idolatry, and it's the religious variety. In order to show you what I'm talking about tonight, I want to show you a story in the Bible that's so strange you may have even heard it and never really considered it before. It's one of the more bizarre stories where God has delivered the Israelites out of slavery. They're, you know, they've gone out of Egypt, and now they're, um, in, they're in the wilderness. They're wandering around for like 40 years in the wilderness. And at one point, they start to complain. They're complaining because there's not enough, you know, they don't like the food, the variety of food. At least back in Egypt, yeah, we were slaves, but we had buffets. And they were just complaining about that. And so God sends snakes like you do, right? 
God totally sends snakes, and um, at this moment, uh, and, and if you could put in Numbers 21, verse 4 up, here's what happens. Um, in Numbers 21, after five to five back-to-back stories of the Israelites complaining, God has had enough, and so he does this. Then the people of Israel sent out, set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Eden. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. As a father of five kids, this sounds so familiar. So this is basically the Hebrew version of are we there yet? So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. I love how casual that is. And so God sent snakes. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, Hey, we changed our mind about that food thing that we were talking about. They said, we've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord told him, make a replica of a poison snake and attach it to a pole. All those who are bitten will live if they just look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. And the only thing more bizarre than the, the, you know, God sending a snake to punish the Israelites is the solution, right? God sends snakes. They're like, we changed our mind. And God's like, all right, make a fake snake, put it on a stick, hold the snake on a stick up, and anybody who looks at it will be saved. It's just a really strange story. But what's even more strange is that after that story, apparently the Israelites want to kind of commemorate that. They want to remember the day that God saved them from themselves by having them make this snake on a stick. And although we don't really get told anything else for, about this for about 30 years, I can fill in the gaps of the next few, uh, few decades of what happened with that snake. Actually, it's hundreds of years, not decades. I can fill in the gaps because of my 37 years around church people. Because here's what I know about church people. If you experience God in a powerful way one Sunday, if they sing that song that you like and it just gives you goosebumps or whatever, you want to know what you want to do the next Sunday? Yeah, you want to sing it again. If you experience God in some kind of moment, you want to do that again, even if it's going to come back with diminishing returns. You want to do that again. And so something very interesting had started to happen. And by the way, if you ever want to really doubt the existence of God, try changing stuff on church people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, I, I know us religious people. You have an encounter with God, you, you want to do it again. And it's not that the thing is bad. Like all idols, it's a good thing that you try to make a great thing, that you try to say, I'll be incomplete without that. You found God in it, and now you think God stayed in it. So, the people started worshiping, not the God who saved them, but the way God saved them. And so we find it again hundreds of years later in Hezekiah's reform. In 2 Kings chapter 18, we'll just start in verse 1. It says, In the third year of Hosea, son of Elul, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. 
they'd begin to burn incense to it. They'd begin to worship it. But what's really haunting are the verses that came right before this. In 2 Kings 17, verse 38, it says, uh, God says to the Israelite people, Do not forget the covenant I've made with you, and do not worship other gods. We got it, God. We're not going to worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is He who will deliver you from the hands of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, and persisted in their former practices. Even while, watch this, even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and their grandchildren continued to do as their father did. Even while they were worshiping God, they were worshiping idols. Do you need somebody to tell you how often this happens? How often people come to church worshiping Jesus, but really they're worshiping lots of other stuff besides Jesus. You, you talk to them, and by the way, you can see it. You can see it in me. I can see it in you. But it's really hard to see in the mirror. This is why you need church. This is why you need people who can like, speak the truth to each other in love. Because idolatry is so, so tempting. You, you, you can see, like, sometimes people, you know, they, they, they talk about Jesus and you think, wait a second. I don't recognize that Jesus from the Gospels. It sounds a lot more like the God of money, like the God of nationalism, like the God of sex than anything having to do with Jesus of the New Testament. Like when, if you were just to do an inventory of your life, an audit of your life, would it be possible that you would be in the name of Jesus, worshiping things outside of Jesus? So remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If you grew up in church, you've heard that story before. They stood against that idol. Basically, here's what happens. The people of Israel have been taken into exile. They're living in you know, the land of Babylon. And the king decides he's going to, he makes himself a 50-foot golden statue of himself. Like you do. And then he tells every, all the people in Babylon they've got to um, bow down and worship the statue every time the music plays. And these three boys, who would have been like teenage boys at that time, they, the music starts playing. They're around people that, you know, they probably want to impress. They, they don't want to, you know, they're not wanting to die. These three boys refuse to bow down. They say, even if this kills us, we're not going to bow down to your dumb little statue. And they have no idea how the VBS story turns out of them. Right? They don't, they, they don't think, and this is important, they do not think that God is life insurance. They do not think that worshiping God is going to guarantee that they stay alive. In fact, they're pretty sure it's not. If, if they did, if they were trying to worship God as life insurance, that would be a form of idolatry. Artemis in the day was a form of security, worshiping security, worshiping safety. But they don't worship Artemis. They don't worship. They worship the one true God who is worthy of worship despite what you think, or despite, you know, what this God is going to do for you. So they say, when they say, uh, when they tell the boys, you got to bow down and worship this statue, they say, our God is bigger and better than your, than your idol, than you, king. Our God is bigger than you, and our God can save us. And even if that God, if our God doesn't, we're going to keep worshiping him. Some people lose their faith because of horrible things that happen to them. Some, some, some of you may be. You lost people you cared about. Sometimes I've seen people walk away because of children dying or natural disasters. I get it, by the way. I've done those funerals, too. I've lost people I love, too. And sometimes church people came up and, and made it worse. They came up and they said things about how like God needed another angel or, or something like that, and it didn't help. 
But there's another way to proceed into suffering that's different than this, right? I have a, a person in our, our church, Dr. Ellen West, who she's worked with a lot of African refugees in Abilene, and they were fleeing genocide. And she said it's so interesting that they never questioned their faith in God. And seeing all this blood and violence and they losing everyone that they loved, they never questioned their faith in God. And one of the things I would say, when it comes to talking about suffering, when it comes to talking about suffering, don't use other people's suffering to make your point about God. Matter of fact, if you are going to leverage other people's suffering to make an argument about God, I would say proceed with caution. Because what you may find disturbing, they may have found God's comfort in. Um, that's all I'll say about that, except for this. In the middle of doing this series, this young woman who had grown up at the church I preach at, her name is Tabitha, um, her and her fiancé came and said, I want to get baptized, and found out her story a little bit. And what happened was, when she was 12, her mother got cancer. And she prayed to God for the longest time, God, please save my mama, please save my mama, please save my mama. And ultimately, her mother died. So she walked away from all of it. God, faith, Jesus, church. She walked away from all of it for years. And then she just slowly started to come back to this realization that the God that she stopped believing in never really existed. That this idea that God would, if you believe in God, that God would protect you from bad things happening to you, who came up with that idea? Because it certainly isn't Christians. You know, Christianity started with the very worst thing happening to the very best person. Christianity at its heart is not trying to say, believe this and you'll get life insurance. No, Christianity started by saying, God takes even the worst, the worst evil that can happen and says, all right, let's start there. And here's the point of this. If you believe in the wrong God, then atheism is actually a step towards true faith. If you believe in the wrong God, then atheism is a step towards true faith. I'm not sure why God lets people suffer. I'm not sure why God um, makes the world the way it is or where things so bad can happen to each other. But I do know this. God participates in it. God actually helps us like bear up underneath the suffering and redeems it and bends even that back to his purposes. And that's why I like this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so much. Because they stand up against those idols, and when they get thrown into the fiery furnace, they have no idea how it's going to pan out, right? They have no idea of the future, but ultimately they're going to come out of there because after a while you're like, well, I guess they're not cooking, so let's bring them back out. And they come out and they don't even smell like smoke. And to everyone else there, they were despised before that. They were hated because they didn't take, they weren't a part of the, you know, cultural common good, what everybody thought this is what a, a good civic-minded person does. They were hated and despised, like today's atheists often are. You know, often in today's um, world, if you're an atheist, you can't get elected as a, a, in a public office. And here's what I want Christians to see. You were once that person. People often thought of Christians, and in lots of places in the world, still do, often thought of Christians as people who were subversive and against the common good, even as we were trying to resist the idols that are destroying the common good. 
And I want you to notice something else. These boys stood with each other. The social pressure around them was immense, but they did not stand alone, which is why churches matter. And why if you don't need church in your life, you're not probably doing a very good job of standing against the idolatry in your life. Because churches need each other because it's incredibly difficult to resist the idols. But they resisted them together. That's what church is supposed to be. Part one, atheists, or Christians, atheists make the best Christians. Part two, Christians make the best atheists, really. So at the end of this series, we gave out cards to you know, a couple thousand people at Highland and just said, write down idols in your life. And they wrote down all these different things. Like somebody wrote Dr. Pepper, which come on. You can't, you can't have too much Dr. Pepper, so you're absolved. And, um, but some people wrote like um, perfectionism, being a perfect mom, being a perfect wife, being a perfect daughter. Some people wrote their marriage. Some people wrote the part of our marriage that was happy. Some people wrote um, our kids. Some people wrote sports. Some people wrote the woods. Um, one person who I love is my favorite card wrote, I'm not going to lie, I zoned out for a little bit, and I'm not sure what we're supposed to be doing here. And they stuck it in there like a champ anyway. <laughs> but here's the point. When a person stops believing in God, it's not that they don't believe in, they don't, they believe in nothing. It's that you believe in anything. Like, if I had more time, I would kind of walk you through the empirical stuff. But let me just say this, and if you want to ask me about it later, I can tell it to you. People who have done the hard work uh, and this has been everything from the New York Times to the Atlantic to world religions professors. There is no such thing as nuns. People who say that they're not affiliated with any religion, there's no such thing as that. We turn away from Jesus, and you're always turning away from Jesus. If you turn away from Jesus, you're always turning towards something else. You cannot move away from something without also moving towards something else. And so the people who have done the hard work have discovered that the people who have stopped having faith in Jesus have not stopped having faith. And, and they haven't even have stopped having, you know, they, there's often like memes and, you know, things like that online that talk about like, oh yeah, virgin birth, raised a zombie from the dead three days later. Yeah, I believe that. That's really, okay, well, how about this? If you don't go to church, you are twice as likely to believe unempirical evidence, unverified evidence about UFOs or fortune tellers. Um, nationalism. There's a huge resurgence of nationalism coming primarily from people who are walking away from faith in Jesus. The thing, and all of these, except for the UFOs, are things that the ancient world used to worship and the early Christians refused to. So what do you worship? Can you at least, and you don't have to say this to everybody else, but can you at least be honest with yourself? You've probably figured it out just in the last 24 hours thinking about this. Is there something that has your heart that if you don't have it, your life's not worth living? And can you at least own up to it? What's your ultimate? Because if you can, then you can realize it will not do what it says it will. Some of my favorite people in the world were people who were Christians, then walked away from it, and eventually came back. Because of that. Because they realized when they turned away from Jesus, the thing they turned towards could not do what they wanted it to do. I'm talking now about people like St. Augustine and C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Day and Malcolm Muggridge and Francis Bufford and G.K. Chesterton and more recently, Science Mike. Some of y'all may have heard of Science Mike before. Science Mike is this Baptist deacon. He's a really you know, smart guy. He thinks a lot. He, he uh, served his church. And at one point, because of his family dynamics... He couldn't be honest, but he stopped believing in God. 
He was still serving as the Baptist deacon in his church. And he couldn't ask any questions. So he's going online. He's getting in like different groups uh, online. And eventually he just blows up and tells his wife and his mom everything. And everybody's praying for him. And that makes him even matter. So Science Mike is away from home. And he's on um, a business trip in California. He left the south and he's in California. And while he's on this business trip, he's walking around. And he has this kind of spiritual moment where Jesus tells him, Mike, do you remember on the playgrounds when you were bullied as a kid? Do you remember that we used to spend time together then? And he has this moment where he remembers that. That really happened like every day of school. Instead of playing with other kids, he had to go out by himself. And he and Jesus would just talk. And he'd forgotten about it. And now he's in California and he hears like this voice say, do you remember that, Mike? And now Mike has a problem. Because he's still an atheist, he just happens to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, and he doesn't know what category he fits in now. I love those kinds of people. They come back to faith, and it has a limp in it. They had stared into the abyss, and they realized there was something that was drawing them back. And it wasn't a certainty. They knew no human can ever be certain. I mean, that, that you're, you're using scientific standards to talk about, am I certain I love my wife? Yes, but you can't put that certainty in a test tube. There, no human can be certain the, the way scientists are certain about certain things. It, it's not that. The way, of, the way of the first Christians was not so much certainty. It was, we, were, we were described like wayfarers and sojourners. We're trying to understand who God is as we go and also who God isn't. C.S. Lewis actually said, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had a whole lot of moods where Christianity looked terribly probable. And what drew them back is the same thing that tugs on you in those moments. I think if you're honest that you probably, most of us have. The thing that drew them back is the thing that tugs on us. It's your moral intuition. You, you know your, your deepest moral intuition say there is such a thing as justice. You don't get to just define what that is either. There is such a thing as value. And it, it doesn't matter. Like, value is outside of me. There's human dignity. And I can't describe why outside of God made us in his image. That people who are vulnerable matter. The people who are weak matter, and they actually deserve our special attention. The, the people who are weak and vulnerable matter just as much as the people who are strong and virile. And yeah, maybe you don't like the idea of a God who can tell you how to live your life, but in your more honest moments, come on, aren't we aware that we're not doing that great of a job living our own life? In our more honest moments, like, don't we admit, like, We've had, or don't we have insights that we've messed up our life? Maybe when it comes to over-abusing alcohol or over-indulging on entertainment or using our money in bad ways or whatever it is. And in our honest moments, can't we realize that's the very things people turned away from? You realize Dionysus was the goddess of wine or the god of wine? The, um, Apollo was the god of entertainment. Hermes was the god of the marketplace. Zeus was the god of justice. And the first Christians turned away from those gods. Not because they were bad, not because they were intrinsically wrong, but because if you made them the center of your life, they would destroy you. And they turned towards the living God. And here's the thing that I told my buddy on the plane that thought, he said, you're going to lose your job if you say it. But it's so, to me, this is the thing that I found the most helpful. 
To my friends who have walked away from faith, but they still feel that tug back when they get, you know, like, why do you care about these things? Why are you trying to be a moral person? When they get those kind of questions, they feel this tug back. But even more than that, even for the ones who don't want to believe in a God, you want to know what I've found almost universally true? They still miss Him. They still miss God. I actually asked my friend Jacob, did you ever accidentally pray? He's like, yeah, all the time. How could you not? If you, you know, grew up with God being this you know, intimate God, then how could you not? And it's for people in that category, and maybe people in your life in that category. I just want you to hear this one thing, because this has probably blessed me more than anything else. G.K. Chesterton was 1900s England. Um, Chesterton was not always a Christian. He actually struggled a lot with faith. But ultimately, something that made Chesterton come to the Christian faith was reading the story of Jesus dying on the cross. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Chesterton said, after that it was done for him. Because he knew the Christian faith was the only one in for which one brief instance, God himself was an atheist. Do you know what that means? It means for those of us who have that sometimes ache of doubt, for those of you in your life who have people in your life who have walked away from God, but they, they still miss him, It means God is willing to even meet you there. And if you want to believe in God, I am not making this up. This is the Christian tradition. If you want to believe in God, you haven't worked out all the intellectual stuff, you haven't got it all, but you want to believe in God, the tradition says that's enough. I am not making this up. From St. Augustine, who said, Only the one who doubts can truly have faith. To closer to home, St. Randy of Harris said, If you care enough to doubt then you're very close to faith because Christians make the best atheists and it turns out atheists can make very good Christians. Just a couple of things. One about suffering and then one about the world that I'm concerned we're leaving and then we'll pray and worship. If at any point the man, the um, terrorist who lived around Jesus' time who was a, a person who had, we don't know anything about him, the historical character, we don't know much about he uh, had uh, got into a life of poverty and crime and ultimately terrorism. And that led him to being stripped naked on a Roman cross, having his hands spread wide and crucified. And if at any point that person would have said, where is God? I cannot believe that there is a God in the middle of a suffering world like this. If at any point the thief on the cross would have asked the question, where is God, the great irony would have been nine feet to your right. That's who God is. That's always been who God is. Second thing, the Greeks, the gods that they spit against were really big on you know, strength and being strong and courageous and those kind of things. They gave us the marathon. 
They gave us those kinds of great cultural achievements, like this idea that you should run for 26.2 miles or whatever. A lot of y'all have heard preachers talk about the Hoyt family. Um, This young boy who was um, born handicapped from birth. He could not move anything except a finger. But because of that finger could move, he ultimately was able to communicate with his family. And one day his dad, Dick, was running um, like a 5K fundraising thing with his boy. He was pushing him. It was like a, a, a... a friend of theirs had a disease, and they were pushing this thing. And as they were running, his son told Dick, Dad, when you run, I don't feel handicapped. And he has run hundreds of marathons, pushing a child that the Greco-Roman world would have left on a pile in the middle of the woods. The Greco-Roman world gave you the marathons, It did not give you that. Or how about Pope Francis? If you could, next slide. This is Pope Francis kissing a man with a um, uh, skin disease. And as he's doing this, I know why he's doing this. He's He's captured the world's imagination. You know why? You know why he's not coming in and just arguing about all the, you know, the standing against whatever cultural wars are going on right now because he sees what's happening and he just wants the world to know what she's going to miss. This is who Jesus is. This idea that you could that, that um, pe- everybody matters, that the weak and the vulnerable matter, that there's not anybody beyond the grace and love and redemption of God, that is an idea that came at great cost. Because the first Christians turned and spit against the gods that said otherwise. And Pope Francis is just trying to give you a glimpse into what the gospel has done for the world. And remind us that Christians really did make the best atheists. They still can. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for the people in this room. I pray that you would help um, inspire us to be Christian. Help us, to, as we sang earlier, to be Christian in our hearts. Help us to um, internalize this message and then take it out into the world. Help us to identify the idols in our life and to stand against them well. In Jesus, we ask this. Amen.